0: This morning, we're going to begin the sixth and final chapter of the book, chapter uh, six. Uh, You may recall that chapters five and six deal primarily with the ministry of the church. Paul has been bringing up different people groups and how Timothy was to best minister to them, how he was to interact with them and lead these various groups. We looked at the general population of the church, how Paul instructed Timothy to treat Older men as fathers and younger uh, men as brothers. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in the Lord with all purity. Then Paul turned his attention to the widows in the church and gave Timothy instruction on how to best minister to them. Then at the end of chapter 5, Paul spoke about the elders in the church and how they were to be treated within uh, the church ministry. Today in our text, we're going to take a look at two more groups of people that Timothy will have to have a plan for and ministering to and directing them in the ways of the Lord. Our text is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-10, through 10, and the title of our study is going to be Godliness with Contentment. Godliness with Contentment. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Holy Word? I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I want to encourage you all to do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, the following, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach from such withdraw yourself. Verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to once again gather in this place, once again open up your Bible And once again, just allow your word to speak to us, Lord, to allow your word to mold us and shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Lord, we ask that as we uh, read and and study and apply your word today, Lord, that your word uh, would go forth in power, Lord, that it would uh, reap a harvest in the hearts and lives of your people. And so, Lord, we give you this time. We give you our service, um, and we ask for your continued presence and your blessings. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, a simple reading from our text lets us know that we are going to be looking at two more groups of people this morning. In the first two verses, Paul brings up bondservants and how they are to interact with their masters. And then in verses 3 through 10, Paul once again brings up the false teachers Timothy is going to have to deal with who have infiltrated the church. So let's take a look at this first section dealing with bondservants and their relationships to their masters. Again, in verses 1 and 2, it says, "...let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor." so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So Paul brings up a very prominent group of people within what was known as the Roman Empire. bond servants, or your translation may simply read slaves. It's been said that more than half the population of the Roman Empire were slaves during the first century. Many of these people were educated and cultured, but legally they were not considered persons. They were property of their masters. Slavery during the Roman Empire was more economic than racially motivated. People usually became slaves as a result of war or poverty. You could even make yourself, sell yourself as a slave for a certain amount of time to uh, pay off certain debts that you uh, could carry. And so there were a lot of slaves uh, during this time. And the gospel message of salvation and freedom in Christ appealed to the slaves and many of them became believers. When slaves were able to get away from their household duties, they would fellowship in local churches where being a slave was not considered a handicap uh, a handicap of some sort, for in the gospel there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus according to Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. And because there were many slaves during that day, and because they were part of the normal culture of that day, Paul often wrote about them and how they were to be treated, how they were to live their lives as followers of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, he exhorted slaves to be content with their status, not to be overly concerned about it, but if an opportunity presented itself to be made free, that they should, in fact, take it. Uh, in Colossians, he wrote Bondservants, obey in all things, your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. In Ephesians, he wrote similarly saying Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with thy service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You know, there's even an entire letter in the Bible that's written about a runaway slave named Onesimus. Um, And Paul writes to his owner, Philemon, asking him to receive him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother in the Lord. And so we can see throughout Paul's writings that he had a lot to say about bond servants or slaves. And as he writes to Timothy, he once again brings them up and instructs Timothy on what he needs to teach them as slaves. In his writing here to Timothy, it is plain to see that Paul has two different types of situations in mind here. In verse 1, he is speaking about slaves who have non-believers as their masters. And in verse 2, he's speaking about slaves who have a brother in the Lord as their master, a fellow believer. In verse 1, Paul writes that those who are under the yoke, uh, meaning those who are bound to service, it's a, a figurative way to refer to a life of servitude as slaves. Those who are under the yoke are to count their own masters worthy of all honor. The word honor here carries with it the idea of respect or reverence, to esteem someone highly. Bond servants were to treat their unsaved masters with great respect and esteem them highly. Why? Well, Paul tells us why, right? In the rest of verse 1, he writes, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. When it speaks of the name of God, it's referring to the reputation of God, the character of God. As followers of the Lord, these slaves were meant to represent the Lord well to those around them, especially to those who were unbelievers. If a slave claimed to be a follower of the Lord and one who adhered to the doctrine of Christ, yet was lazy or disobedient or bitter or easily angered or simply showed a dissatisfaction with their life in general, it had the potential to cause their masters to not want to have anything to do with Christ. As representatives of the Lord, these bondservants needed to live a life that was in agreement with the doctrine of Christ and live to honor and glorify His name, that their masters may see their conduct and give honor and praise to the Lord and His work upon the life of their slave. And this is in accordance with what Christ taught during His Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he wrote, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Even as bondservants, they had a responsibility to represent their Lord and Savior in the work that they rendered to their masters. And the hope would be that as these masters see the diligence and the faithfulness Uh, Of their bondservants, they would admire them and desire to know more about the God whom they serve and ultimately come to faith in Jesus Christ themselves, thus adding to the dynamic of their relationship as not just master and bondservant, but brothers in the faith. Which brings us to what Paul had to say in verse 2. About those bondservants who had fellow believers as their masters. Paul says they are not to despise them because they are brethren, the idea being that they are not to show their masters less honor or less respect because they are brothers in the faith. Just because your master is a believer doesn't mean that you should not show him the respect and honor he's due as your master. Instead, Paul tells Timothy to instruct bondservants with believers as masters to serve them all the more because they are your brother in the faith and they will benefit from your great service. You would be bringing blessing and honor and a benefit to a fellow believer in the Lord, one whom you love as a fellow follower of Christ. The scriptures instruct us to love one another. Jesus said that it would be our love for one another that would distinguish us as his followers that all would know we are his disciples by our love for one another. And this obviously still applies in the bond-servant-master relationship. There is to be a mutual love for one another as disciples of Christ. And so as you serve your brother in the Lord, you bring blessing and benefits to him, thus pouring into the body of Christ that you are a part of. In a way, there's a benefit that comes to you in and through your service. As you bless your master, the body of Christ is blessed and because you're part of the body of Christ you get to share in the blessing that you help to provide. Now we don't have uh, bond servants and, and slaves nowadays so how does this apply to us? Right? Um, how do these commands regarding bond servants and masters uh, fit into today's world? Well Much of what is said within the scriptures pertaining to the master-servant relationship can be equated to our employer-employee relationships that we experience today. Okay, If you are an employee and your employer is an unbeliever, well, you should respect and honor your employer by working hard and representing Christ well in the work that you provide. In the book of Colossians, we're told that whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We must remember that even in our workplace, we are working as unto the Lord. We are serving our Lord and representing Him in the service we provide our employer. Our work ethic needs to show that we are different from those who are not believers. right? Our work ethic needs to show that we are servants of the Lord Most High. You know, I remember several years ago um, when I was working at Calvary Chapel, Okinawa, there was an F-15 fighter pilot um, that was extremely well-respected by all the other pilots in the aviation community. He was uh, well-spoken of by all around him, but he was distinctly different from many that were around him. He was a servant of the Lord. He headed up our ushers' ministry and was one of the most faithful young men I've ever had the privilege of serving alongside. He would be out there, like Okinawa gets some really bad rain sometimes. It just comes down heavy and it comes down fast. And he'd be out there in the parking lot with like umbrella, walking ladies, you know, and just getting drenched. He just loved Jesus and he loved to serve the body of Christ. Um, he didn't, he loved Jesus and he didn't engage in a lot of the um, after our revelry that's often associated with the aviation community, whether that's right or not, um, the um, stigma that is, I remember asking him how he's able to do it. How can he be so well-respected by the other pilots when he doesn't engage in what others like to describe as you know, team-building exercises and, oh, this is camaraderie and you got to do this and engage in that? And he said it was because of his work ethic. He worked harder than everyone else there. He outperformed them all, and so they couldn't say anything negative about him, not engaging in the activities that others were expected to engage in. Because of his work ethic, he could stand upon his convictions and not engage in activities that would bring reproach upon his Lord and Savior, and it served him quite well. Uh, Last I heard, he had continued his success. He made it to the rank of Brigadier General, all while maintaining his strong walk with the Lord and keeping to his convictions. We need to have a strong work ethic as Christians that sets us apart from those who aren't Christians. A Christian employee should be the best kind of employee around. Okay? We need to have this mindset so that we can be an example to our unbelieving bosses and, fo- and fellow employees. That we may make Christ more attractive to those around us. And hopefully, through our good works, people will see Christ in us. They will desire what we have. Now, if you are an employee of another Christian brother or sister in the Lord, you need to make sure that you treat them with as much honor and respect as possible. You need to work hard for them, that your service may bring blessings and benefits to them. Unfortunately, this is almost always... Not the case when it comes to working for other Christians. Far too often you hear stories of Christian employees trying to take advantage of their Christian bosses, thinking they should receive special treatment and leniency because they are both believers in the Lord. They show up late to work and expect their bosses not to make a big deal about it, or they slack off and make unreasonable requests for time off and they want preferential treatment. This is not how it should be. If your boss is a believer that doesn't give you the that does not give you the right to slack off or to make him expect less from you simply because you are a brother or a sister in the lord the opposite is true because you are a brother or a sister in the lord they should expect you to excel in work to give your all that you would work as unto the lord for them that they that the both of you may reap the benefits that come with a great work environment As Christian employees, we should bring honor and blessing to our employers. We should be the best employees around. And this is especially true when working for a fellow believer. Galatians states, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. But then he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. As Christian workers, we should always look to do good, but especially when it comes to working and serving our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. God deserves our best, and we ought to honor Him and the service we offer to one another. The end of verse 2 states, teach and exhort these things. Bible scholars are divided on whether or not this exhortation is supposed to be connected to what Paul just stated in verses 1 and 2, or what follows in verses 3 and on. This phraseology is reoccurring throughout this letter. In chapter 4, Paul wrote, these things command and teach. In chapter 5, he wrote, and these things command that they may be blameless. Here in chapter 6, it's teach and exhort these things. Okay? Whether it applies to the previous verses or the next verses really doesn't matter all that much. Everything that he writes is stuff that needed to be shared with the body there in Ephesus. It all needed to be taught. The church needed to be exhorted in all of these things. Let's move on to this next group Paul has words for. It is a familiar group that Paul has mentioned a few times already. Read with me verses 3 through 5. He says, If anyone teaches otherwise To Timothy's attention, those who are causing some big problems there in Ephesus, the false teachers. Paul opened up his letter addressing the work of these false teachers, and the reason Timothy was even left behind there in Ephesus to pastor the church he wrote, as I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. This was the main reason Timothy stayed behind in Ephesus, to confront these false teachers that were spreading their poison amongst the church body. Paul, once again, has similar exhortations to Timothy regarding these false teachers. And the first thing Timothy needs to do is to be able to identify who it is that should be considered a false teacher, one deserving of this sort of special attention from Timothy. And so Paul gives Timothy three ways to identify a false teacher. Number one, Paul says that they will teach otherwise. Now, the phrase teach otherwise is actually one word in the Greek. It's a long word. I'm going to attempt it, but I'll probably butcher it. It's the word... Heterodidaskaleo, heterodidaskaleo. It's a compound word. Heteros means other or different. Didaskaleo means to teach. It means to teach something different, to teach a different kind of teaching than what has been received. It's only used twice in all of the Bible, here in chapter 6, and also in chapter 1, verse 3, which I just quoted from. There in verse 3, it's translated as teach other doctrine. That whole phrase, teach other doctrine, is this one compound word in the Greek. Any teaching that does not line up with the received doctrine based upon God's word can be considered to be false. For a teaching to be considered true, it has to line up with the already revealed truth of God's word. Jesus asked the Father that his disciples would be sanctified by his truth, and he stated, your word is truth. Okay, now, at this time, we need to remember that the already revealed truth of God's word was primarily pointing to the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament teachings that had been handed down through the years. Okay? What we know as the entirety of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the New Testament hadn't been compiled yet. And so when it's talking about um, the word of God, the truth of God, Primarily, we're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. If someone comes along and starts teaching something that's contrary to the already revealed word of truth in God's word, we can be sure that person is spreading lies as a false teacher. The second thing these false teachers will do is that they will not agree with the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea behind wholesome words carries with it the idea of being healthy or sound. Some translations render this word as sound instruction or sound words. These wholesome words, sound instruction, they stand in opposition to the false teachers and what they shared as a poison that spread like a cancer, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. And so if someone comes along and starts teaching something that's contrary to the words of Christ that are left for us in the gospel accounts, we can safely identify them as a false teacher. As I mentioned, I think, last week or maybe a couple of weeks ago, it's believed that the gospel of Luke is already in circulation at this time, and some of the other gospels are being compiled together that contain the word of Christ. Obviously, the word of Christ was being passed on uh, through the church. And so if it was contrary to the words of Christ, that is a false teacher. The third way we can identify false teachers is that they will not consent to the doctrine which accords with godliness. The false teachers tried to separate teaching and knowledge from godliness. They looked at doctrine as knowledge to be obtained, not instructions to be followed. They looked at doctrine as a set of beliefs or statements one would agree upon intellectually without ever looking to actually put them into practice this doctrine that accords with godliness is what had been passed on to Paul and who in turn had given to Timothy. He wrote in chapter 3 about the mystery of godliness that had been given to him and how great it was. That God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among Gentiles, believed it on in the world and received up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 In Ephesians, Paul wrote how that by revelation he... Uh, referring to God, made known to him the mystery, uh, he writes parenthetically, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So not only did these false teachers share things that were contrary to the Old Testament and to the words of Christ, they also were not in accord with the doctrine of godliness that had been passed along to Paul and the other apostles. And so in looking at the warning against false teachers and how to identify them, we can make a great application for our own lives here today. How do we know what good, sound doctrine is? Okay? How do we know that what we hear taught is accurate? It's quite simple, really. Okay? If we see it or the principles attached to it, taught or exampled in the Old Testament... In the Gospels and in the New Testament epistles of the apostles, we can be sure that it is good, sound doctrine. Okay? The holiness of God is seen in the Old Testament, the Gospels, and then in the New Testament epistles. The depravity and fallen nature of man, it's in the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the New Testament epistles. The wages of sin being death, we see it in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the epistles. Okay, the substitutionary death for the remission of sins. We see evidence of it in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the New Testament epistles. Righteousness accredited through faith. We see evidence of that in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and in the epistles. Right? These are all examples of sound doctrine. Instructions and teachings that are found throughout the Bible that we can build our life upon. So we need to look at the entirety of what the Bible says and teaches when we try to discern what is true and what is false. If it doesn't line up with what the Bible teaches in the Old Testament Gospels and New Testament, we need to be leery of it. We need to make sure we don't get caught up in false doctrine that leads us astray from the Lord. We need to be good Bereans. Okay? We use that phrase a lot in uh, Christianity. It's a Christianese term we you know, what I like to use, but the understanding of it is you know, uh, very important. Okay? It was the Bereans who were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. As Paul came along and they started teaching some things that were a little bit different, a little bit new, they said, okay, we'll we'll take that in, but we're going to make sure that it lines up with the already revealed word of God. We're going to search the scriptures and make sure what you're saying lines up with what God says, right? That's what it means to be a good Berean. It means we make sure that what we're being taught aligns with and is in accordance with the revealed word of God. In verses 4 and 5, Paul goes on to speak about the overall character of these false teachers and what it was that motivated them to spread these false doctrines there in Ephesus. Paul called them proud. The sense of this word is to be so arrogant as to be practically demented. To be insanely arrogant. To be extremely proud. Some translations use the word conceited. The idea being that they have an overly high estimation of themselves. They think that they are all that and then some is basically what this means. And though they are proud, Paul says they know nothing. They, they think they know everything. Everything. But by their actions, they prove that they really know nothing. They are obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. The word obsessed in the Greek is connected to the root word for sickness. It carries the idea of being sick or delirious. It's used metaphorically here to describe how these false teachers have a sickly longing for disputes and arguments over words they enjoy fighting over words and meanings of certain words, and they build entire doctrines off the meaning of certain words that are stripped from their context. I've come across people like this before who are so obsessed with arguing over doctrine that it that is uh, that it comes across as um, some sort of sick longing that they have to make themselves look superior or to look more intellectual than others. They love to argue with people and make it seem like they are the only ones that know the truth, and that if we would simply agree with them, then we could be part of their group. It's really sad to see within the body of Christ these sorts of people who focus upon dividing the body of Christ rather than bringing it together. They come off very abrasive, very harsh, and they want to make you feel inferior to them because you don't believe exactly as they do and you don't adhere to their interpretation of things. Paul lists here a number of the results that come from this kind of obsession with arguing over words. From it comes envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, the idea being constant friction between each other. Okay? These men are of corrupt minds and are destitute of the truth. The word destitute means to deprive or to prod another of what belongs to them. These people go around defrauding people of the truth of God's word. And in the middle of verse 5, we see that the, what the motive behind their actions are. They believe that they can profit off of their teaching. They believe that godliness, okay, here referring to their form of religious observance, that it was a means of gain they are trying to gain wealth from their followers their plan their intentions are to amass enough people that they could become richer off of them fleecing them for all their worth taking advantage of them and abusing their position as a religious teacher for their own materialistic gain what a sad story that this is and unfortunately it is a story that continues to be told even to this day I remember when I first got saved and told my extended family about my decision to follow Christ and start going to church, the first words that came out of their mouths were, be careful, the church only wants your money. (laughs) How sad it is that the impression many in the world have about the church is that all it wants is your money. The sad reality is that there have been enough times where churches have defrauded people of the truth and have ripped them off, that the exhortation to be careful is actually warranted. Paul exhorts Timothy at the end of verse 5, from such withdraw yourself. Now, some of your translations don't have this last exhortation because it isn't found in some of the oldest manuscripts. But this is, a pretty, this is pretty sound advice for us to adhere to. Okay? Don't have anything to do with these sorts of people. Okay, do not get sucked into supporting them, sending them money, reading and buying their books. Okay, don't have anything to do with them. Okay, withdraw yourself from them. Don't let yourself take in their deadly poison. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 10. We'll wrap up our study this morning. Verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul focuses in upon the idea of godliness and gain based upon the false teacher's desire to abuse godliness as a means of gain. And Paul asserts asserts here that godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment speaks of having a positive self sufficiency, being satisfied in one's own circumstances or position in life. This self sufficiency, excuse me, self sufficiency doesn't mean having a conceited idea of self, like that of the false teachers, or or suggest a a sole dependence upon self, right? It is simply being satisfied with whatever situation you find yourself in, whether good or bad or anything else, you are satisfied and content in that situation. And this takes faith to believe this way. And it shows a peace of mind and heart that realizes and understands that God is in control and that whatever comes our way is something that the sovereign Lord has permitted. Paul had this sort of godliness with contentment. He writes about it in the book of Philippians. He writes, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter what state Paul was in, he had learned to be content, to trust in the Lord, and that he would be able to do all the things through the strength that Christ provides him. This sort of godliness with contentment is great gain. It gives to us a proper perspective, and it keeps us looking to Christ for our sufficiency. Warren Rearsby wrote in his commentary this. I wanted to share it with you. I really liked it. He said, True contentment, comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. Okay, I'll say that again. True contentment comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. People think that wealth and money can bring contentment and happiness, but it will not. True contentment and satisfaction is only found in a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Worldly wealth is fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow, but godliness is investment in the eternal that remains. Paul writes that we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. It reminds me of Job's famous words in Job chapter 1, verse 21, where he declared, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even the preacher in Ecclesiastes states, As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. You you don't get to take anything with you of the material investments that you make when you die. When it's all said and done, all that you've worked for in that realm won't go with you. Okay? And so what are you investing in? What are you putting your hope in? Are you trusting in riches, in your retirement, in your ability to provide to provide for yourself on this side of eternity while thinking nothing of the other side of eternity? We need to be investing our time and our energy, our resources into things that are going to last, things that are going to impact eternity. Because when your life is all said and done, only that which was invested in God's kingdom is going to last. It's that which is going to last forever. And so Paul states that simply having the basic necessities of life should be sufficient for us. God will take care of us, provide for our needs as he sees fit. You know, after writing about how he had learned to be content in Philippians, he went on to say, "...and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus." Paul trusted that God would provide him with whatever he needed. And so if he was in a situation where he didn't have something, Paul believed that he didn't need it. Because if he needed it, God would have given it to him. What a great outlook on life, okay? If you don't have it, you don't need it. Otherwise, God would have provided it for you. God knows how to take care of the needs of his people. In verses 9 and 10, Paul warns Timothy of the temptation that comes with desiring to be rich. They fall into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Those who seek after riches never have enough. They will continue to lust after more and more because riches do not satisfy. They only create an insatiable longing for more and more riches. And men become overwhelmed with seeking after more and more riches to the destruction of their very lives. He writes in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is one of the most commonly misquoted verses in the Bible. Okay. Uh, many will say that money is the root of all evil, and that's not what it says, okay. Or some may say the love of money is the root of all evil, but that's not what it says either, okay. It is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. There are many roots of all sorts of different forms of evil. The love of money is simply one of them. Money itself is amoral. It isn't evil. It isn't good. It is a tool. It is what you do with the money that ultimately determines whether you use it for good or you use it for evil. The basic idea is that it, that's being taught here regarding money, is that if you love it, you will inevitably be led by it and it will lead you into all sorts of evil. You can't love money and serve God at the same time. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic word for riches, okay? You cannot serve God and riches at the same time. You must choose whom you will serve, whether it be God or money. But you cannot serve both. Having money or having riches isn't an evil thing. It's okay to have money. I would say it's even okay to build wealth. The problem comes when we pursue wealth instead of pursuing the Lord. Right? We need to be content with what God provides and trust in Him, not in our riches. You know, a simple way to think of it is this. Having money is fine as long as your money doesn't have you. Okay? Use your wealth as a way to be a conduit of God's blessings and provisions to those around you. Remember that money is simply a tool Use it properly for building the Lord's kingdom and investing in eternity. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the opportunity once again just to jump into 1 uh, Timothy, Lord, as we continue to make our way through it. And Lord, just getting practical uh, counsel and, and wisdom and how to deal with certain uh, issues, certain things within the church. Um, Lord, I pray that... Um, The words that we looked at today, Lord, that they um, speak to us. Lord, in whatever situations we find ourselves in, we pray that we would be obedient to apply these truths that we have uncovered today. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can build our lives upon it, that it is a sure foundation. And Lord, I thank you uh, that you do provide for us. You do take care of us, Lord, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Lord, that we would just trust in you and your provision in our lives. Lord, that we wouldn't seek after the things of this world, but we would seek after you and pour our energy and efforts into building your kingdom, not our own. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.